Hello, and welcome to Roundle Round We Go. I'm Emily, I use she and they pronouns. And I'm Paul, and I use he and him pronouns. And today, we're going to Finchley Road. Finchley Road opened on the 30th of June 1879 and today is served by the London Underground Metropolitan and Jubilee Lines. Finchley Road is in Fair Zone 2 and the London Borough of Camden. In 2019, Finchley Road was used by 9.19 million passengers. In 2020, that declined to 4.7 million passengers. Finchley Road only has level access when interchanging between the two lines, the Metropolitan and the Jubilee, travelling in the same direction, not for passengers entering or exiting the station or changing between the lines in different directions. The architect of the original station building was A. McDermott, and despite research we have not been able to find out what the A stands for as his first name, but that building was demolished and replaced in 1914 by the current building by Frank Sherrin. The station Finchley Road takes its name from the street which it is on. The road was completed in 1835 as a new road linking London to Barnet, which, to avoid the hilly areas around Highgate and Hampstead, ran via Finchley and hence was known as the Finchley Road. The word Finchley itself comes from the Saxon word meaning a wood where finches are found. Finchley Road Station is served by buses 13, 113, 187, 268, C11 and night bus route N113. The labyrinth at Finchley Road Station is number 197 out of 270 and can be found in the ticket hall. We'll start with the description of the station for those who don't know it. So the station itself doesn't really stand out on the street. There's this big John Barnes, used to be a department store there, now a big Waitrose. And then on the next block over, you get the station. And it's on the corner of this row of shops on either side. Plain Portland stone facade inserted into the corner of those shops. There's flats above, it's called Canfield House, and inside the station you get this standard 1930s design. We read that it has St. James floor tiles. We didn't know what St. James floor tiles were, and we've done a bit of research, but if anyone knows what that means, please enlighten us. You've got two brick-lined staircases that lead down to the platforms, and the platforms are mostly covered by a glass and metal canopy. One of the platforms entirely serves southbound trains, so the Metropolitan and Jubilee on either side, allowing for cross-platform interchanges, and you have the same for northbound trains. Something I really love is that on the platforms, the uh, platform number signs are this really cool old design where you've got the digit for the number kind of overlaid on a red outline of a London Underground roundel. I think that's a classic 1930s design feature, which you can find at another few other stations around the network, but it it looks quite lovely. Uh, The other thing I really like is a sort of relic of past communications methods in that on the ends of platform one and two, there is a bronze staff letterbox, which in times past would have been used by London Underground staff to send sort of internal mail around the network and they'd have popped their letters in there and then I think the bags of letters would actually have been carried around by the guards on 
in-service London Underground trains. You can actually find those letterboxes dotted around in various other places as well. I think there's still one on Charing Cross station platform somewhere, but as far as I know, they are all well out of use now. Because we haven't done any of the stations on the first underground railway, that's the original Metropolitan Railway that ran from Paddington in the west to Farringdon Street, which is very near where Farringdon is today in the east. I just want to make sure we we all know where we're at with that. So this was dug via cut and cover method. So digging a trench, putting the tunnel in it, covering it over and open on the 10th of January, 1863, running steam trains through there. We are going to be touching on that a bit later in this episode. So it's good to sort of have that beginning. But we're going to look at the second underground railway, which is the one that Finchley Road eventually wound up being on, which was the Metropolitan and St. John's Wood Railway. The Metropolitan and St John's Wood Railway was the second underground railway line to be built in London and it was intended initially to link up from Baker Street to Finchley Road which of course is the subject of our podcast today and the company that built it was a nominally independent company but in fact very closely linked to the existing Metropolitan Railway Company and As you've probably heard from our previous podcasts, that was a kind of financial structure which seemed to be very common with these Victorian-era railway constructions. They started promoting the company and the route in 1863, so basically as soon as the initial Metropolitan Railway had opened, and they managed to get parliamentary authorization to construct it in 1864. However, As was always the case with these early railways as well, they were having a lot of problems in raising the money to actually build it. So the railway had to be designed on a very tight budget. So to save money, the whole tunnelled section from Baker Street all the way up, in theory, to Finchley Road was constructed as a single track railway. And then with passing places where the trains could go in opposite directions past each other at the intermediate stations, which were at Marlborough Road and the station that would later come to be called Lord's Station, although it opened with a different name. And the company also decided they weren't able to afford to build the full planned route all the way to Finchley Road and instead would have to terminate at Swiss Cottage Station. However... And this is something that really confuses me. According to one of our sources, they actually built the tunnel north of Swiss Cottage Station, almost all the way up to Finchley Road Station, and then didn't bother to lay the track inside it. And the tunnel got all the way up to a place called the North Star Inn, which still stands today. And what really surprises me is that it's described as being built for a quarter of a mile through open countryside, but still as a tunnel excavated beneath the surface. Now, from an engineering perspective, this makes zero sense to me, as why on earth, as a company that's clearly really struggling for funds, would you build a railway underground through the open countryside north of London, and then once you'd already dug the tunnel, 
decide you weren't actually going to bother laying the tracks in it, which by that point is the cheap bit that you need in order to actually get the profit-making services running. So I'd say horrible financial mismanagement could be a reason for that. Either that or they were looking at what the Metropolitan Railway was doing and saying, you're building this railway entirely underground. That's a trendy thing to do so we could get on that. But either way, that's also horrible financial mismanagement. So clearly they weren't making the right choices there. Indeed, and substantial portions of these early, you know, the Met and the District were built just in open cuttings anyway, which would be way cheaper than building a tunnel. What really fascinates me is the use that was found for all the spoil excavated out of the tunnel that was dug from Baker Street up as far as nearly Finchley Road. This sounds like we're going off on a bit of a tangent, but on the 15th of January 1867, there had been a quite horrific disaster at Regent's Park. Several hundred people had been skating on the ice on the park pond when it suddenly gave way, and somewhere up to 500 people suddenly plunged through the ice down to the bottom of the pond, which was about three metres deep at the time. Now, this was actually something which had almost been anticipated. There were uh, sort of lifeguards called icemen employed by the Royal Humane Society to try and rescue anyone who fell through the ice in case that happened. 19 of them were on duty at the time, and they immediately started trying to rescue the people who'd fallen through the ice. But with hundreds of people falling through, that was an overwhelming task for them. Many of the onlookers and other skaters who had been lucky enough not to fall through started trying to pull people out. There were skaters, you know, clinging on to the bits of ice that were still floating around. People were throwing in tree branches for the skaters to cling to. But of course, they were all wearing heavy winter clothing, which would become soaked straight away in the water. People were dragged down by the weight of their skates, which were firmly tied onto their feet, so they weren't able to kick them off and swim up to the surface. And ultimately, 40 people drowned in the freezing cold water of the pond in Regent's Park. It actually took several days to recover all the bodies, partly because the water of the pond started freezing over again not long after this disaster had taken place. All the people who drowned in the disaster were men, mostly in their teens and twenties. So it really was quite a horrific tragedy that so many people had died while ice skating. And in the aftermath of the inquest into the event, it was decided that the depth of the lake had to be dramatically reduced to prevent anything like this from happening again. And so, in order to make the pond much shallower, a huge amount of the spoil from the excavation of the tunnels for the Metropolitan and St John's Wood Railway was taken to Regent's Park and dumped in the bottom of the pond. And that hugely reduced how deep it was, until now it's only about one metre deep instead. And this proved to be enormously effective, because 19 years later, again, people were ice skating in 1886 on the frozen over Regent's Park pond, the ice failed, a hundred people sank into the water and no one drowned on this occasion because it was now shallow enough that they could just stand on the bottom and walk back to the edge. So 
the Metropolitan St Johnswood Railway responsible for a quite dramatic safety improvement in a park pond there. And I think all park ponds these days are similarly shallow, whereas they often used to be incredibly deep. I also don't know if this is just evidence of climate change, because I've lived in London over 10 years now, and I've never seen it even remotely cold enough, even in the snowiest time I've seen it here, that a lake would freeze over to the point that people could actually go skating on it. I've seen on Blackheath when I was a kid, the Princess of Wales Pond froze over there to the extent that my mum and my sister went walking on it right over into the middle. I guess in England you don't get the number one message you're being taught in school as do not ever walk on thin ice, so you might have less experience with it. Uh, Well, that pond is also about like half a metre deep at most, so it was safe enough for a bit of exploratory ice walking. Uh, But otherwise, yeah, I've never heard of people ice skating on park ponds in London. I suspect it's a combination of global warming and also the city being so much bigger, you probably get much more of a heat island effect than you would have done. So returning to railways, we're still looking at this railway, the Metropolitan and St. John's Wood Railway, that's attempting to make its way up to Finchley Road, but isn't there yet. And it wants to open in 1886. That's the plan, but they don't have the funds. So it's decided that the Metropolitan Railway will run this railway with their trains. To facilitate the use of their trains on the Metropolitan and St. John's Wood Railway, the Metropolitan wanted to create an interchange in a place where the tracks would connect. So to do that, they created a station called Baker Street East, which, as the name suggests, is just slightly to the east of Baker Street. If you know Baker Street today, you'll know that there is a platform that has the Circle and the Hammersmith and City lines. And then if you're going to take the Metropolitan line, you have to walk a little bit up to different platforms. This is where Baker Street East was, where those today's Metropolitan Line platforms that go out northwest are, just to the east of the station. But originally, it was a separate station, and you could have to leave Baker Street East and go to Baker Street if you wanted to change between the two, but trains could run from Baker Street East, bypassing Baker Street, and on to the Metropolitan Line there, so onwards towards Great Portland Street. So the plan was, from the time the Metropolitan St. John's Wood Railway opened, which was the 13th of April, 1868, you would have trains running in from Swiss Cottage to Baker Street East, or some of the trains would run in from Swiss Cottage through Baker Street East all the way to Moorgate, which was at that time the terminus of the Metropolitan Railway. From the beginning, this line wasn't very successful, and one of the biggest reasons for this was that they never met their intention of getting to Finchley Road, stopped a bit short of that at Swiss Cottage. Finchley Road was important because it would have provided two really important interchanges which would get people onto trains there. One of them was with the London Northwestern Railway, which was at Finchley Road and Frognall Station. You can still interchange there today on the North London line. The other one was the London Midland Railway, which had a station that no longer exists, which was very near Finchley Road. So you would be getting a lot of extra passengers from both these lines if the Metropolitan and St. John's Wood Railway had gone all the way to Finchley Road. 
due to the lack of financial success and the fact that there were two accidents that occurred when trains were coming in from the north and joining the rest of the railway, the Metropolitan Railway decided to stop running trains from Swiss Cottage all the way to Moorgate and cut the service back from just Swiss Cottage to Baker Street East and then customers would have to make the awkward interchange to Baker Street if they wanted to continue on the rest of the Metropolitan. Despite the lack of financial success, the Met saw a lot of potential of running trains out into the northwest of London and beyond, and started seeking parliamentary approval for a number of different plans so they could hedge their bets on what would be the most successful railway out into what would become Metroland. The plan they eventually settled on was one which would extend from Swiss Cottage all the way out to the station we know today as Harrow-on-the-Hill. Now, this harkens back to our last episode on Harrow and Wealdstone, because we talked there about how the London Northwestern Railway, when they were first built, weren't initially interested in commuter services. So the Met went, well, we've got all these people out in Harrow. They want to get into central London. This is a market we can take advantage of. So that's where they decided to build their extension. Now, work began on this in a hurry. They started construction at Swiss Cottage in 1878. The 30th of June, 1879, they were already running a shuttle service between West Hampstead and Swiss Cottage. It was just running via the down platform at Finchley Road, which was just a temporary wooden platform they'd put in to try to get as many commuters as they can going up and down on the shuttle service. Work continued quickly, though, and by the 24th of November, 1879, you had a double-track railway from Swiss Cottage to Wilsdon Green, though single-track south of Swiss Cottage. From the 2nd of August, 1880, you had the railway open all the way to Harrow-on-the-Hill, and by July, 1882, the Met had completed the tunnel doubling south of Swiss Cottage. And at the same time, the Metropolitan Railway were increasing their control over the original Metropolitan St. John's Wood Railway Company. And eventually, on the 1st of January of 1883, that ceased to be an independent company and was totally owned by the Metropolitan Railway. To return to Finchley Road, because I know this is a podcast a lot about context to get us to understanding Finchley Road, but when the original station itself was built, it was bigger than any other station on the line. Stations like Wilsdon Green, West Hampstead, there wasn't that big of a population around there. It was still quite a rural area. Finchley Road had grown a lot, so they made this very large station. It had a refreshment room, it had a more ornate design, it had what one of our sources describes as a splendid clock. I'm putting that in air quotes. I don't know what exactly the splendid clock looked like, but it was definitely grander than the other stations on the line. And this is the original building, not the one that now stands today. But the other thing we want to point out is that between Finchley Road and Baker Street, there were three other stations, all of which are disused today, and Paul's going to go into a little bit more detail about them. The original Metropolitan and St. John's Wood Railway had three stations beyond 
Baker Street, uh, at Lords, at Marlborough Road and at Swiss Cottage. And we're not going to get to talk about them in any other episode of our podcast because they're all now closed down. So this seems like a great opportunity to tell their story. Uh, the terminus of the Metropolitan and St John's Wood Railway at Swiss Cottage, that was the smallest station on the line. It was originally a very small building and uh, we know that later on it got rebuilt in 1929 to make it a bit larger and add a shopping arcade to it. The next station back down the line towards central London was Marlborough Road Station. And that was quite a bit more dramatic because the original railway, we know it was single track, built like that to save money, but with double track at the stations so the trains could get past each other in opposite directions. And whereas the running tunnels were underground, these intermediate stations were just in open cuttings, open up to the air, and they had quite grand arched iron and glass roofs over the two platforms, a bit like you'll still find at a few of the metropolitan and district railway stations in London today. And Marlborough Road would have had a yellow brick sort of building on the corner of Finchley Road and Queen's Grove. And then the closest station on the line to Baker Street was what we kind of tend to call Lord Station. But in fact, that wasn't the name of the station when it first opened at all. It was called St John's Wood Road Station initially. But people mostly call it Lord Station because St John's Wood Road gets confused with the existing St John's Wood Station and Lord's is a shorter and snappier name and the name it had when it eventually closed. And like Marlborough Road, this again, it would have been a passing loop station on the otherwise single track railway. It would have had uh, a large grand glass roofed over the two platforms and the fact that there were these two passing loop stations on the single track railway resulted in some quite interesting operation of the railway because the traditional safest way to operate a single track section of railway is you have something called a token which is a physical object which must be held by the driver of a train in order to give them permission to drive on that section of single track. And it would normally be something like um, a wooden stick um, or a metal disc. And the rule is you have to have that to drive on the track. And therefore, clearly, as only one train can be in possession of the token, you can't have two trains heading towards each other and it avoids you ever getting a collision. Now, if you're trying to run a very busy service, then having the drivers having to pass sticks or discs or whatever back and forth between each other before they can drive on the single track is a little bit of extra delay. So from 1874 onwards, in the area between Lords and Swiss Cottage, there would have been human pilot men who were employed simply to jump onto the footplate of the steam engines hauling the trains and their presence gave the train authorization to drive over that section of track. And then the pilotman would jump off when they got to the other end of that section of single track, hop on the train that was going to go across it in the opposite direction and ride back the way they'd come, which I think is a rather fantastic bit of sort of early uh, efficient operation of a single track railway and so different, totally, utterly different from anything we do to safely run a railway today. But you know, effective, and it worked at the time within the constraints of what technology was available. Lord's Station, or St John's Wood Road Station, had its platforms down in the cutting, and then the original station building was up at street level above the platforms, and it was initially a very small, single-storey, yellow brick building with a booking hall which was only about three and a half metres wide, so kind of the size of a decent-sized living room. Uh, and that was all that was needed most of the time. It was generally a very quiet station. But, as you may have guessed from the 
name Lords. It was very close to the cricket ground at Lords, and therefore got extremely busy when there were cricket matches on. And in fact, it got so busy that the station just couldn't cope with selling all the tickets to the people who were coming from the cricket matches. And therefore, from 1892, they had a wooden hut which they installed inside the cricket ground over at Lords and used to sell railway tickets to people leaving the cricket matches at the end of them who wanted to get home via Lords Station. Uh, and in fact, that single wooden hut proved to be insufficient, and therefore later on they added another wooden ticket office, which was set up in the sort of grounds of the station itself. And that was a really cool one, I think. It was a portable wooden ticket office, and it was used during the cricket season at Lords. And then during the football season, they moved it over to Drayton Park Station for when there were Arsenal home games on, and people could use it there. So it was this kind of special sports extra ticket office that moved back and forth between Lords and Drayton Park, depending on which sports were being played at the time. But eventually, it was realised this tiny little station and a couple of wooden huts, depending on which sports were being played, was insufficient. And between 1924 and 1925, the original station building was demolished and a new one was built to a design by Charles Walter Clark, who was the architect responsible for a lot of the Metropolitan Railway station buildings of the era. Now, by this point in the 1920s, steam trains were no longer running on the Metropolitan Railway, and that meant that a vent shaft, which had been kind of in the station grounds to let the steam and smoke out from the trains, was no longer needed, and therefore a larger station building could be constructed, which would cover over that area previously occupied by the vent shaft. And this was a kind of much grander building. It was clad in white faience tiling, very similar to that used by Charles Walter Clark at the station building he designed at Farringdon, which is the sort of Metropolitan Circle Line station at Farringdon today. And this building would then have two flats up above the booking hall as well for sale to get some extra money for the railway company. And as well as building a new station building, they also took the opportunity to put a huge concrete floor at ground level right over the top of where the tracks and platforms were. But rather cleverly, they actually slotted that in underneath the existing iron and glass overall roof. So now the tracks were covered over, roofed over by this concrete, and then you had this flat floor at ground level with the great big glass roof over the top of it. And they used that space as a kind of mezzanine level for private car parking. It was basically sort of rented out as uh, almost like garage spots rather than it being, you know, like temporary park your car for a day. It was like you rented it for long term storage of your car. Uh, and around the same time in 1925, it changed its name from St. John's Wood Road, just a plain old and simple St. John's Wood. And in the end, it wasn't until the 11th of June 1939 that it was finally renamed Lord's Station, which is the name we always give it when talking about the station. But, in fact, it didn't have very long to exist by that point, for reasons which we shall come on and talk about in a moment. Emily mentioned earlier the growth of Metroland, which was the huge area of suburban development to the northwest of London, which was massively encouraged by the Metropolitan Railway, the building of vast numbers of houses around their stations on the line out of Baker Street towards the northwest. And 
as was entirely intended by the Metropolitan Line, this caused huge amounts of extra demand for passengers to ride each morning on the trains from northwest London into Baker Street. And this did cause, as expected, much greater congestion on the tracks into central London. And to cope with this, between 1914 and 1915, they added extra capacity by increasing the number of tracks between Wembley Park and Finchley Road from two tracks to four tracks, which means you could have separate fast trains and slow trains and overall run many more trains than would have been possible previously. However, because the tracks south of Finchley Road were in tunnels all the way back to Baker Street, it was far too expensive to increase from two tracks to four tracks for that stretch of the railway. And that resulted in the area between Finchley Road and Baker Street being a massive bottleneck, which constrained the amount of capacity on the Metropolitan Line. At the same time as building more tracks north of Finchley Road, the Metropolitan Railway also rebuilt Finchley Road Station in 1914. They demolished the original building from 1879, and replaced it with the current building which stands on the site, designed by Frank Sherin. And that's the one that Emily described at the beginning of the podcast, although it has been further rebuilt down at platform level later on, but more on that later. Although the Metropolitan Railway hadn't been able to afford building extra tunnels south of Finchley Road back in 1914-1915, They continued to have an ambition to add more tunnels between that area and sort of into central London. And eventually in 1926, the Metropolitan Railway managed to get parliamentary permission for a really quite grand scheme, which would add much more capacity to that section of the line. And in fact, this was to build a complete diversionary route which would divert from the existing Metropolitan Railway mainline just south of Wilsdon Green, so in fact quite a long way north of Finchley Road, and it would then run as two new tracks above ground as far as Kilburn and Bronsbury, and then it would dive down into a tunnel which would run underneath Kilburn High Road, underneath Maida Vale, beneath Edgware Road, and then it would join up to the Circle Line just west of Edgware Road Station. And there would be three new stations on this line, which would be at Quex Road, at Kilburn Park Road and Clifton Road. Now, unlike the original Metropolitan Railway, which was, as Emily said earlier, it was cut and cover, excavated downwards from the surface as a big trench and then roofed over. This would be a deep tube railway, much like, you know, the Northern Line, the Bakerloo Line, all those other deep underground lines. And it would actually have much larger tunnels, though. It would have to be built to mainline size, effectively. 15-foot, 6-inch diameter tunnels so that the full-size Metropolitan Railway trains would be able to run through it. The Metropolitan Railway began detailed design work for this new bypass route with the new deep tube tunnels. However, in 1928, the Ministry of Transport updated their official requirements for passenger lines and this confirmed a pre-existing rule that all tube trains must have a means of escape for passengers while they are in the tunnels, which seems like a pretty obvious requirement to have, to be honest. It's something we take for granted today, but perhaps not quite so much back then. And it insisted that all the trains must have a way for the passengers either to get out kind of via either end of the train by walking through the cab, 
That's what you see on the deep tube trains today, like on the Northern Line or the Bakerloo Line, for example. There's a door right in the front of the cab that you can use to climb out onto the track, even when you're in a deep tube channel and you wouldn't be able to get out through the side doors of the train. Or there would have to be a way for passengers to get out through the side doors of the train onto a walkway running along the side of the tunnel. And that's what you would see in, for example, the crossrail tunnels when they open, or what you'll see in the Northern Line extension that opened earlier in 2021. Modern tube tunnels would always have a side walkway. And though we take that for granted today, it came as quite a surprise for the Metropolitan Railway, who hadn't expected to have to meet this requirement. All the Metropolitan Railway's existing electric trains were hauled by large electric locomotives pulling passenger carriages which didn't have any corridors connecting them and that meant there was no way for passengers to get through the front of the train and escape out via the locomotive or out the back of the train at all and they didn't want to have to pay to replace all of their existing trains with new ones with a through walkway and they also didn't want to have to pay for the expense of building much larger tunnels in which they'd be able to fit a walkway down the side of the tunnel and then build maybe cross passages linking the tunnels in each direction to provide an escape route for the passengers. And having been hit with this realisation that the scheme would be massively more expensive than hoped for through either building larger tunnels or replacing all their trains, the Metropolitan gave up on that idea. So this plan for the diversionary route and the Metropolitan Railway's large deep tube tunnels has become one of those kind of hypothetical but never constructed abandoned tube railway schemes. And I think one of the lesser known ones as well. It's not a project I'd ever heard of until we started researching for this podcast episode. So it's quite a fascinating thing for me to have discovered about, especially as it came a cropper owing to what we consider to be modern safety regulations and their sort of early application. But... The Metropolitan Railway still wanted to try and increase capacity, but now were attempting to do it on the cheap. And what they came up with instead was a plan to fit way more trains on the existing two tracks between Finchley Road and Baker Street. And what they would do is reduce the opening hours of the intermediate stations at Lords and at Marlborough Road to only opening between 9.40 in the morning and 5 o'clock in the afternoon, on weekdays from the 1st of October 1929 onwards. And this would actually enable them to run 20 more trains on that section of track into central London during the morning peak, which is quite a spectacular increase in the number of trains and something we would consider a really incredible extra capacity boost today on any London Underground line. So a massive achievement. And the idea of you know, shutting Marlborough Road Station effectively throughout the entire rush hour, it seemed reasonable because ever since 1914, there had only been 40 passengers per day using Marlborough Road Station, owing to effective bus competition in the area. Yeah, it suffered the same sort of fate as a station like York Road did, where it's so close to central London that the tube fare just doesn't make sense. You can take a bus or you can walk to your destination. You don't want to pay just to go one or two stops. But of course, this didn't stop some people from being upset. So Paul has prepared for us a rendition of the complaint letter about the closing. Yes, Mr. S. Gertz 
who lived in the vicinity of Marlborough Road Station, managed to get 131 signatures on a petition protesting about it being closed all through the morning rush hour and therefore making it useless. The petition read, Why should the St John's Wood and Marlborough Road districts be made to suffer owing to the Metropolitan Railway's policy of making systematic and sustained efforts to develop outlying districts? Why should these two districts be entirely deprived of their train service during the morning rush time because the Metropolitan Railway has boomed Metroland? Not very long ago, the Metropolitan Railway placed outside Marlborough Road Station an attractive advertisement in which it drew attention to its excellent service from that station citywards. Trains at 8.03, 8.13, 8.23, etc. Remember the threes, was the slogan. Does it feel justified in having thus endeavoured to make city workers settle in that district, only to leave them soon afterwards with a station closed to them till an hour when, for most of them, it is practically useless? Spoilers, they did feel justified. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the petition was sent to the Metropolitan Railway's general manager, Mr R. H. Selby, and he replied that the decision to close both stations until 9.40am and after 5pm was only reached after careful consideration and it was intended to improve conditions for suburban passengers who were totally reliant on the railway when travelling to or from work. As locals had seemingly favoured buses of recent years, he suggested that they continue using that means of transport and not use either station as a means of commuting. I think what's really interesting about this is it sets up this conflict between the inner London commuters who had previously been favoured by the Metropolitan Railway back when they were building their initial Metropolitan yeah, Paddington, Wood, yeah. and what you know had been the outlying areas of London at the time that this railway was constructed back when Finchley Road was open countryside and now this new area of development that they were pioneering way further out in Metroland and how this you know caused problems with having enough capacity on the railway and who they would be prioritising and who they served. And in fact, this question of the capacity on the railway was one that would come back again a few years later. Now, there were a lot of contributing factors to the over-congestion of the Met, but the one we want to talk about right now is the extension to Stanmore, which was authorized in 1930 and would allow the track to veer off just north of where Wembley Park was and then create four miles more track out to Stanmore. This branch opened on the 10th of December 1932 and was one of a lot of branches, a lot of places you could go on the Metropolitan Line at the time. But I'm sure you're thinking, I know which line terminates at Stanmore today. Yes, you're right. We'll get there, just not quite yet. The opening of the Metropolitan Railway's branch to Stanmore was the last project to be carried out by the Metropolitan as an independent railway company because it was on the 1st of July 1933 that London Transport was formed, taking over the Metropolitan Railway and almost all the other underground railways in London, with the exclusion of the Waterloo and City Line, along with all the trams and all of the buses. And very quickly after it had been formed, London Transport began a massive expansion programme, which was known as the New Works Programme, authorised by the 1935 London Passenger Transport Act. And among the projects included in this were things like extending the Northern Line, extending the Central Line, modernising 
other sections of London's railways and replacing all of the trams with trolleybuses. Boo, that was the bad bit of it. Uh, But one of the projects within the New Works programme was to finally deal with the huge overcrowding on the Metropolitan Line section, especially between Finchley Road and down into Baker Street. And the way they would do this is to transfer the Stanmore branch of the Metropolitan Railway to now become part of the Bakerloo Line. Now, by this point, the Bakerloo Line was running from Elephant and Castle in the south all the way up as far as Watford in the north, and a new branch would be added. So there would be a junction at Baker Street Station where there would be then new tunnels diverting off from the existing Bakerloo Line tunnels, which would run underground all the way up as far as Finchley Road Station. And from there onwards, the Bakerloo line would take over the central two tracks of the four tracks that existed, all the way up as far as Wembley Park, and then it would take over the entirety of the two tracks of the Metropolitan's branch up to Stanmore. And that meant Finchley Road actually became kind of the hub of this whole rebuilding project and this conversion of the Metropolitan Line into the Bakerloo Line because it was where the tunnel boring started, uh, digging southwards down towards Baker Street for the new underground section of the Bakerloo Line, and it was also where a lot of the work had to be taken place to change the way the railway tracks worked from being all Metropolitan to being the outer two tracks only for the Metropolitan Line and the inner two tracks now for the Bakerloo Line. And at this point, there was also a complete rebuilding of the platforms of Finchley Road Station to put them into the way that you see them today with the concrete and glass overall roof and also the redecoration of the interiors of the station, I think, as far as we know, happened at this time as well. Now, work on the project began with tunnelling starting in April of 1936 and... The excavation works, the tunnel construction, had been finished by November of 1937, and the platforms at Finchley Road were then finally completed by the 18th of September of 1938, ready for the Bakerloo Line trains to start running through them. However, as you've probably noticed with the dates, we are starting to get into a period where the world was beginning to have other priorities. Mm -hmm. And indeed, it was initially intended to start operating the Bakerloo Line services from June of 1939. But by this point, a lot of the construction workers were being diverted into civil defence work in preparing the country for the World War, which by then was widely expected to be beginning imminently. They pushed back the opening date to October of 1939. Of course, by that point, the Second World War had actually got well underway, Britain had declared war on Germany, and eventually it wasn't until November the 20th of 1939 that the Bakerloo Line opened this new branch, uh, started running the trains from Baker Street up through Finchley Road and taking over what had been the Metropolitan Railway up as far as Stanmore. And in fact, because of the ongoing war, there were still some bits of the work that hadn't quite been finished. The platform indicators, which were supposed to be installed on all the northbound platforms between Elephant and Castle and Baker Street, telling passengers whether their train was going 
on the branch to Stanmore or on the branch to Watford Junction hadn't yet been installed because the manufacturers of them were engaged in vital war work, manufacturing all sorts of other electronic things, and therefore the passengers had no way of telling which way their train was going, which branch it would be heading onto. And instead they came up with an idea of sticking a big letter M on the front of the trains if they were going to Stanmore, which <laughs> seems illogical because Stanmore <laughs> begins with S, but it was an M for Metropolitan yes, yeah, yeah. because it was the old Metropolitan Railway branch. Uh, but obviously you had to know your railway history in order for the train destination to make sense. And had to be probably a Londoner who knew what was going on, not just some random person showing up at the station hoping for the best. And there was also an interesting little feature, because there was now this four-track section in the open air, which in theory could have the small Bakerloo line trains or the big Metropolitan line trains running along it, and then diving into tunnels, which definitely only the Bakerloo line trains could fit down, because they're a lot smaller than a Metropolitan line train. There had to be a way to make absolutely certain you didn't accidentally drive a Metropolitan Line train into the Bakerloo Line tunnels and peel its roof off. On the southbound Bakerloo Line track at Finchley Road Station, there would be a glass tube hanging down above the track, and this would be filled with mercury, with an electrical current being passed through it to complete a circuit. And the tube was at such a height that a Bakerloo Line train could pass safely underneath it and run into the tunnels, but the larger Metropolitan Line trains, if they ran on the southbound track, it would be higher and smash the glass tube and let the mercury out and break the circuit, and that would cut the power uh, in the tracks and put the signal to red and stop the train from heading into the tunnel. Which is quite brilliant. Yeah, it's a really simple system. And they actually, there were similar devices at other places where you had the sort of district line, the circle line, the Piccadilly line trains all coming together. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, fascinating sort of old but simple technology. With the opening of the Bakerloo line on the 20th of November of 1930, 39. The Metropolitan Line stopped running the sort of local stopping services between Finchley Road and Baker Street, and therefore it was decided that Lord's Station, as it had finally just been renamed a few months previously, would close down on the same day that the Bakerloo Line services started running. And it was initially intended that Lord's Station would reopen whenever cricket matches were on at Lord's Stadium to provide extra capacity for all the passengers coming and going from the cricket matches. But all cricket was completely cancelled during the Second World War. And in the end, after the Second World War was over, they never reopened the Lord's Station and it was finally demolished in the 1960s. Marlborough Road Station was totally closed uh, from the 20th of November 1939. The overall roof of the station was demolished in 1967. In the 1970s, the street-level building became a restaurant, and that remained open right up until 2008, when it closed, when the lease ended, and the building was then turned into an electrical substation for the Metropolitan Line, which it is now, and the building is still standing, so you can see what the old Marlborough Road station entrance looked like. The Swiss Cottage Metropolitan Line station was intended to be the only one 
of the three to still remain open and still served by Metropolitan Line trains. And an interchange subway was dug underneath the road linking that Swiss Cottage station up with the brand new Bakerloo Line station for the deep level platforms there, which is now the Jubilee Line Swiss Cottage station. Uh, And that went into passenger use when the Bakerloo line branch there opened in November of 1939, but it had remained in use for less than a year because faced with wartime shortages, the Metropolitan Station was closed on the 18th of August of 1940 and again never reopened after the war. But the station entrance building and the subway under the road actually remained in use as a second entrance to the Bakerloo line right up until the 1960s when the station building was demolished, although some of the kind of underground subway and the platforms do still exist. Bits of them can be seen from the trains. So some remnants of that station are still in place today. The thing we keep coming back to about Finchley Road Station is capacity, capacity, capacity. There wasn't enough capacity on the Met, and you have the same problem happening on the Bakerloo line. And one of the problems with having these two Northwest London branches of the Bakerloo line is that central portion of the Bakerloo line gets incredibly overcrowded. So you were running 30 trains per hour in that central section by the 1960s. The other problem, of course, is if you've got 30 trains per hour on the central section, that means only 50 trains per hour on the outer sections. One of those two sections also includes Paddington, which is getting lots of people coming in from the main line. So the Bakerloo line is just constantly overwhelmed. And there are lots of proposals put forward to relieve the congestion on the Bakerloo line. And the one that went out in the end was from the 1965 Railway Plan for London. This plan suggested transferring the Stanmore branch of the Bakerloo line to a new line, which was going to be called the Fleet Line. Four kilometers more tunnel would be dug from Baker Street down to Charing Cross to create the line. And then the plan was from there to continue tunneling east, north of the river, near where the River Fleet was buried under London, or still is buried under London. So that's where the name the Fleet Line came from. Because this line was due to open in 1977, which was the same year as the Queen's Silver Jubilee, they decided that they would call it the Jubilee Line instead, but it didn't open till 1979. So from the 30th of April, 1979, Finchley Road was now on the Jubilee Line, which at the time ran from Stanmore to Charing Cross. And, well, the Jubilee Line has changed a lot since, and we'll get into lots of details of that in later podcasts. Finchley Road remains on the Jubilee Line, as well as the Metropolitan Line today. I think, I think we've covered Finchley Road. We've covered a lot more than Finchley Road as well, but it's really important to set the context for this station. And I think we will refer back to this episode in later episodes when talking about this part of the Metropolitan and the Jubilee line. But I think we're finished for now. So it is time to move on to Onward Connections, where I suggest another mode of transport you can take from here. My suggestion for this one is the C11 bus. 
It's a single-decker bus. It's one of the sort of neighborhood routes. That's what those letters suggest. And it runs from Brent Cross to Archway through a very roundabout route via West Hampstead, Finchley Road. The only bus that goes straight past Gospel Oak Station, it goes through the Hampstead Heath area. It's a really interesting route. I don't recommend it riding it when um, it's after school times because it gets totally packed at the end of the school day. But it's a fun little journey and takes you interesting places other buses don't. This brings us to picking out the next station. Now, Paul, I have a question for you before we do this. We have our bet about two consecutive stations, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So if I pulled out Wembley Park, would that count as a consecutive station? No, I don't think so. I think they have to be next to each other on the tube map, not next to each other in terms of services that are fast versus slow. Okay, good. So we're good with Wembley Park or Baker Street. Okay, shuffle the bag. Yeah, I'm shuffling the bag. Ooh, big one. Uh, Partially closed at the moment. One platform closed, or one, um, one line closed. South Kensington. Oh, well, exciting. We can talk about the uh, rail, the little railway that was supposed to be built in those tunnels that lead to the museums from yes, there. That is yes. one of my favourite things. Uh, what else do I know about South Kensington? It's a very controversial redevelopment project there at the moment. Well, I don't know about that, but I know it's happening, so that's interesting. Um, yeah, so we will be back next week with South Kensington Station. So thank you for joining us for Finchley Road. And thank you to everyone who has been so supportive over social media. If you're not following us on social media, we're at Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And we had a reply to our map-based challenge from last week. So last week's challenge was to get from Heron Wheelstone to Finchley Road without going in zone one or using any out-of-station interchanges. And Callum sent us a reply on Instagram. I'm going to read his whole his whole route. So it was from Heroin Wheelstone to Willsden Junction on the Bakerloo, then swapping to the Overground to go to Gunnersby, then taking the District Line to Hammersmith, the Piccadilly Line to Rainers Lane, and then taking the Met down to Finchley Road. And so yes, as he said, a lot easier to go via Zone 1, but a little bit more fun for that. And we have another challenge this week, Now, we thought because Finchley Road has Finch in the name, and it's also an out-of-station interchange for Finchley Road and Frognal, which has frogs in the name, we'd go for an animal challenge. So what you have to do is find a route from Finchley Road to South Kensington. It can be as long as you want it to be. It can use anything on the tube map. So that's, you know, the overground, the underground, the DLR, the Thameslink, the trams, if you want. But we want you to include as many stations as possible that have animals in the name. So it's the animal challenge. If you've got a route, send it to us on Twitter, Instagram, or email us at roundalroundpod at gmail.com. So yes, any animals, find them. Ham does not count. That, that animal is not alive anymore. And that brings us to the end. As ever, this podcast is entirely produced by us. I'm Emily Turner. I'm Paul Burkett-Gray. And our lovely artwork is by Colleen McIsaac. You can find them at Little Foible Art on Instagram. 
Do we have anything else? Oh, yes. Rate and review us on whatever podcast app you use. We really appreciate that. And I guess now just the references. Yes, indeed. We always use a copious number of references for researching each of these podcasts. And we have just about time to go through a few of them for this episode. So we used books including David Leboff's London Underground Stations and A to Z of London Underground Stations by Jason Cross, uh, London's Disused Underground Stations by J.E. Connor, The Metropolitan Line and Illustrated History by Mike Horn. Rails Through the Clay, A History of London's Tube Railways by Alan Arthur Jackson and Desmond F. Croom. Building London's Underground by Anthony Badzielis. The Jubilee Line, Illustrated History by Mike Horn. Uh, Labyrinth, A Journey Through London's Underground by Tamsin Dillon, Will Self, Mark Wallinger, Marina Warner, Christian Wilmar and Louise Koish. Why Do Shepherds Need a Bush? London's Underground History of Tube Station Names by David Hilliam. What's in a Name? Origins of Station Names on the London Underground by Cyril M. Harris and Tube Station Trivia by Jeff Marshall. We also used several websites, including Abandoned Stations, a fantastic website about the disused parts of the underground, their article on Marlborough Road, and several websites to research the ice skating disaster in Regent's Park, including a blog on the British Library website, an article from The Guardian, and entries in the History House website and an article on the Londonist website. And of course, all of those details of those references are available in the show notes. But that just leaves us to say, I hope you join us again next week for South Kensington.